My guest today, someone I've known literally almost my entire life, someone I'm glad to have on the show. It is. It brings me such great joy to welcome to the show, the Arts Collabs Podcast. Today's guest, Joe Bergen. Joe, how are you doing? I'm doing great. You know, we just started a new semester down here in Bloomington. And as though, uh, what I love about Bloomington is the DIY music culture here that has uh, taken a bit of a step back. And so I'm hoping that one day I can, I can get that feeling again. But I'm happy to be here and, and such an honor to be on your podcast case. Thanks for having me. Joe, it's like you looked at my notes beforehand, although I know you didn't because I was going to ask you or someone that attends Indiana University, you're in Bloomington, a very prevalent DIY scene, particularly the folk punk scene about 15 years ago now with bands like Defiance Ohio and Ghostwise trickling through there. You are now in this new era of the DIY scene. Can you talk about maybe some of your experiences within that community? Yeah, um, it's been really fun and it's kind of as you would expect as you as you step onto a college campus you know that first time being in a very misty uh basement of someone's house where you're not sure if, if the landlord's going to be cool with it or not but no uh bloomington is a college town and uh, the city of bloomington has been around as long as the university and so this place has always had a love for the arts and for for you know weirdos doing interesting things um, and I think that, as, as I had mentioned earlier, although uh, we're in a bit of a drought right now, uh, that, that scene is still here. And, and what I walked into when I got here was something that's very strong and independent from its college town identity, but just a lot of people who appreciate uh, uh, that, that handmade, you know, out of the basement, out of the garage, sound uh and you see it in punk you see it in folk punk and indie but really in every single genre including electronic music but uh, i've really loved kind of sneaking my way into a few places just to see some you know really gritty punk show or some people just uh you know going at it with the, the local radio station it's just really awesome and i hope i get to see more of it soon now if you're listening to this podcast and you don't know who joe is you are probably thinking wow, this man sounds presidential. And that is a very fair assessment. Ever since I've known Joe, he has always been my friend that has had opinions on politics. He has always been someone that has cared about the, the infrastructure of the city in which we're living in. And Joe, I'm just curious, you know, we started a new chapter in American history today. Can you talk to my listeners about the importance of local government and why they should be involved on a local level? Right. I mean, you know, Politics and policy are, can be flashy. You know, we had the inauguration today and hopefully we're turning a new chapter on that. Um, but also uh, sometimes it's not so sexy. And, um, you know, I'm a very ADD person. I, I tend to deal with things at my eye level, things I can, I can deal with realistically. And, but I do have this love of urban planning and public policy. And I found, you know, uh, one of the most, you know, punk things there is, is giving a shit about the things that other people don't care about. And that means, how is the sewer system running? You know, look, recently in Bloomington, uh, we've had our neighbors without homes kicked out of a, of a public park. And, you know, that, that is just as important as, you know, the national politics we see, how are our neighbors being taken care of? Uh, what are the tangible things we can do to, uh, you know, be good to each other without being, a, a, you know, a slimy politician? Um, I think there's always room for that, whether it's in Chicago or Bloomington. Or around the country, Joe, very, very well said. You, of course, are on the Archival Albums podcast. Uh, I want to dive into your musical preferences because I think you're someone that I turn to often for recommendations because I think you have a very eclectic taste. But you are someone that has known me since I believe we were in fifth and sixth grade, I think we go back that far, which is frightening to believe you've seen me evolve as a person. And I do not ask this question in a self-indulgent way, but but rather to shed light and give some context to this conversation. Uh, could you possibly describe the musical evolution that you've seen me take? Because I think you've seen me hit a few different phases now. Yeah, I think, um, you know, when I first met you, you were the type of person where I was like, oh, I, I need to get get to this dude's Spotify stat. I need to see what's going on in this man's brain. Because, I mean, you did truly strike me as someone who thought outside the box and was open-minded. 
And even though I, at the time, you know, didn't like hardcore music or, or folk punk, uh, you know, I would turn it on and, and even shuffle your greatest hits. Um, and what I saw through that was, um, you know, someone who likes quality and someone who likes uh, rawness in their music. And I, and I, you know, I related that too. And so, yeah, when I first met you, uh, you were already into different counterculture and uh, immediately, uh, even though maybe not everything overlapped, I, I saw you as someone who, uh, you know, found little things that they were interest, interested in and, and put passion into it, which is what I really respect out of anyone. And so to see you grow and change has been really awesome. Uh, that's incredibly kind of you, Joe. Thank you. I have said on this show many times, I think singing is an overrated concept. You don't need to be able to sing. You need to be able to put forth emotion into your music. And I think that is something that I care about deeply. Yeah. We'll cross an interesting point in this podcast where I did say singing is overrated, but I also maybe think singing is re required. And that is something we can touch on as we go throughout the show. Uh, but Joe, I'm curious now, your musical upbringing, what were the sounds you had in the house? What were some of the first bands you remember really attaching yourself to and, and investing yourself emotionally in? Absolutely. Um, you know, m both of my parents are kind of like, probably you would describe them as older Gen Xers. So in my house, um, you know, my dad loved a good stereo system. And my dad was a college uh, DJ as well, um, who, who had an appreciation for vinyl and also an eclectic music taste. Um, and, and both my parents grew up in Philadelphia in, in very, uh, you know, mixed neighborhoods where they, they had friends and colleagues sharing to the, with them lots of different types of music. That being said, inside my house was a whole bunch of different stuff, you know. My mom loved playing, uh, you know, Missy Elliott and, and different 90s rap and R&B. Uh, in the car. My dad loved uh, playing some ELO, Depeche Mode, um, you know, that, that 80s edge a lot, but also, you know, some Genesis and, uh, you know, all, all sorts of stuff. But I always loved a good synth sound. Um, and I loved the raw drum machine from some of those tracks as well. And uh, I appreciated just music listening as a way to relax and as an activity and not just as something in the background. So that's, that's where it came from for me, I think, a little bit. Joe, mentioned, you mentioned two artists that have been discussed on this show. We talked about Genesis with my good friend, Jen Allison. We also talked about the miseducation of Lauren Hill. Mm. The first time I heard that album, I was in your car. I was with former guests of the show, Vaughn Rumps. Mm. We had just come back from getting Korean barbecue. And that is something that I greatly miss in my life. Uh, your thoughts on Korean barbecue, and I'll also parlay this into a follow-up question. That is something we cannot do because of COVID right now. We kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel. Maybe we'll get some more vaccination information sooner rather than later. I, I need your thoughts on Korean barbecue, and I need what is the first thing you want to do when you are vaccinated and it is safe to live like, uh, live life like normal again? Yeah, I mean... As far as Korean barbecue goes, that, that is a, a culinary experience that it also requires um, a little bit of patience and, and, and consideration. You know, you're sitting down and, you know, you are appreciating the dishes that are brought to you and you appreciate the activity involved, which is the cooking and the addition of, of different elements such as onions and mushrooms and and how, how those add to a medley in front of you while also enjoying the company of people with you. Um, and, and I'll even go further to say that, uh, you know, resting great Korean beef on a grill is like, you know, putting down a vinyl record. You know, you're in it for the tactile quality and, and sharing good senses among friends. And so I think... <laughs> What was the second question? Uh, was, what, what, what do you want to do after COVID? We've been locked up for 10 months now and, and not locked up as in uh, infringing on our constitutional rights. We've been locked up for good reason, but what would you like to do when we get back to a somewhat normal universe? Jeez, you know, so many things. Uh, my first thought is to be back in Bloomington at a, at a punk show, um, you know, just, just being a monster. Um, but also, uh, I imagine myself in this like 
this dimly lit club in London in the back in which I don't have to even say a word. No one needs to know that I'm American because I'd be too ashamed to even say so. But just uh, hearing, hearing, you know, some groovy beats late into the night in a place where no one knows me. But, you know, London club scene is definitely up on my list, maybe one day. I hope you get to accomplish your London club scene fantasy. I do want to touch on your experience with punk music for just a little while longer because as we kind of talked about at the start of the show, you are someone that finds themselves fancying the the government lifestyle. Uh, typically, punks are rallying against said lifestyle. I know we once took a trip to Los Angeles together uh, for a high school field trip. I know it makes us sound incredibly privileged, but we did go to public school. That is how I justify it in my mind. Did you go to the punk rock record store with me on that trip? Yes, I did. Um, That was off of, what's the classic street? That was uh, on Melrose Avenue. The store is Headline Records. It is still there. I am so grateful for their existence. And I'm just curious, because that was a real eye-opening experience for me. That was right around the time I started collecting vinyl records. And to just go into a store where it was everything by Black Flag, it was all of the minor threat stuff. It was t-shirts, it was posters, it was records, was an overwhelming experience. And I know you witnessed me freak out from a third-party perspective. And I would hope that you at least enjoyed your time there as well. That was before I liked punk. And and Stephanie- I think you bought a Smith's t-shirt there. Sorry to cut you off. I think you bought a Smith's t-shirt there. I did. And, and that reminds me that, you know, that trip to Los Angeles in the spring of 2016, um, you know, we went, we went to a, a very privileged high school and it was, very, it was a privilege to go on that trip. But, um, you know, we did save for maybe a year just for that experience. And uh, I think it came at the right time because, you know, at that point in our high school career, everything was still cool and new. And, and you know, 2016, I would argue, was the peak of 2010's culture. <laughs> Uh, what's your argument for that? I mean, what, what made 2016? Cause that was at the time, the, the thought leaving 2016 was Bowie died. Prince died. Trump was elected. It can't get worse. And it right. did. Right. Well, it did. And that's what makes it so sweet. Um, it did get worse. And er, remind you early 2016, uh, we didn't know Trump was going to be president yet. And, uh, but just being in Los Angeles and being able to go down Melrose, and uh, I think, you know, 2016, we had a lot of great music at that time, and at least for culture as well. But walking into that store and seeing that bald, uh, you know. Maybe Swedish man? I was thinking maybe French, because I remember <laughs> he had an accent for some reason. You know, sleeves, tattoos, uh, but you knew you were in the right place because uh, the desk at the front, you couldn't see a single speck of what the original desk was, is covered in black and white stickers. Um, and uh, even though I didn't have an appreciation for hardcore or punk at the time, you know, I, I, I liked seeing you walk in there and just being like a kid in a candy shop. And just Melrose itself and being in Los Angeles was kind of what I needed it to be, what I expected it to be. Um, and I, I cherish that a lot. Well, let's talk about you. We talked about kind of the music you grew up around. What were some of the first bands you remember really latching onto, maybe away from what your, away from what your parents listened to and more like, okay, these are my bands? Yeah. Um, well, I think that we're almost already getting, getting into it because in the fourth grade, uh, I, I had a good friend who introduced me to electronic music um, and specifically Daft Punk. And we, at the time, me and my friend, uh, we were on the internet a lot, playing a lot of games, and uh, the internet proved to be a cornucopia uh, of new things. And we liked playing electronic music while we played computer games. Um, and so Daft Punk, um, even though at the time, I probably wasn't aware of it. It had this robot robot theme and uh, kind of like a childlike fun to it, uh, with, with, which also served as a great background to just being a kid and playing on the internet. Um, but 
re really early was the internet for music because I, even though I did two years of trumpet in the sixth grade, when you listen to music without uh, a musicality background, you're just listening to it for what it is. And so I didn't even know what electronic music was. I didn't know what a sample was. I didn't know how it was composed, but everything that was coming out of the speakers uh, was fun to me and was really enjoyable. And so it was really around fourth, fifth grade that, uh, you know, you have your iTunes, your first iPod, you maybe have a couple rap songs, a couple rock songs, but the first music I, I really remember sticking with me was that 2000s electronic music. Um, and I think that's why it stuck around in my life. The first iPod is such a valuable piece of technology. Yeah. Joe, you once said to me, and I have the exact quote here, quote, if getting radicalized means listening to Memphis rap and doing a few angry push-ups while thinking about Bill Barr, then consider me a radical. <laughs> I'm just curious, was Memphis rap on your original iPod or is that something that came later on in life? Uh, Memphis rap specifically was not on my iPod. That, that's probably, <laughs> it's a great quote. Um, <laughs> Memphis rap more so comes out when I'm angry and that's just because it's uh you know shamelessly angry music <laughs> well to to quote a Memphis rap band it's hard out here for a pimp three six mafia I mean yeah if I were a pimp I would probably know that to be true I, I was looking at my early iTunes and I did see a song from 2009 uh from a British rapper by the name of Skepta um who you might not know but uh for a a fifth grader to be listening to some gritty B-side of a, a British, you know, grime producer who is now at Drake levels. It's just, it's very funny to me. Um, but, this man went by the name of Skepta? Yeah. I'll have to, I'll have to look him up. I'm unfamiliar with the life and legacy of Skepta. Yeah. Well, let's get into it. Let's talk about electronic music. I, I know nothing about this world. You kind of talked about it earlier about how it's almost this humanless experience when there is no musicianship, which is not to say that uh, the, it's devoid of talent, but rather it's just not the same as sitting down and playing a trumpet or playing a guitar or singing. That has always been a tremendous barrier with me. It's not that I don't appreciate what they're doing, but I've never been able to find myself emotionally invested in it. So house music as a whole, whether it's the Chicago house stuff of the 80s, whether it's Daft Punk in the 90s and 2000s, what is it that just draws you to it? So originally, um, and it has always been um, very tonal for me. And uh, being able to, to listen to something and, and, and not really knowing for sure the sources of the sounds or what it's going for but understanding almost at like a human level the emotion that's carried through whether that's in a chord progression or even a soft vocal maybe they're only saying five words but you just lifted um the most emotive you know little piece from something two genres away and blended it into the soundscape in which you're like, wow, I wasn't expecting that, but it it it, it stuck with me. And, and electronic music itself is now everything because a lot of music, even if maybe it's not produced on a computer, but it is recorded and, and edited and you know edited along the sounds and the tones in, in a you know DAW or in an electronic. Uh, uh, system, but also so many albums these days are, are also incorporate elements of different genres, which probably wouldn't be possible without uh, the internet and also electronics. And so you can almost think rec retroactively about this music, um, thinking like if you really just strip down music to what it is, it's, it's a composition of things coming together. And the electronic music that I love has always been super thought out and, and delicate and creative and not by accident, but these artists have ways of, and oftentimes with electronic music, you have 
uh, house coming out of Chicago and techno coming out of Detroit, it's created with very little means, but you're, you're bringing in the soul and the emotion of circumstance into almost rebellious music, which is just, you know, this is something we're gonna dance to, we're gonna get together to, we're gonna celebrate. Um, and that's kind of what it's always been. I don't know if that answered the question, but that's what I, I, I feel. think it does. I, I'm yeah. curious as a consumer yourself, because you're coming at this from a different angle than I am, where I think I would almost rather things be stripped back a little bit and go to more of an analog, even if it's antiquated, a more analog style of recording. I think you tend to be a little bit more pro for the digital universe. Does it concern you at all as a consumer of music? And again, we are not musicians, but as a consumer that things are going to get too perfect, that we are erasing our mistakes and we are now just almost becoming all of ourselves becoming boring electronic musicians. Is that a fear you have in, in any way? Um, I think that you got to pay attention to what is always bubbling up at the top because, you know, I may say electronic music and I may mean something and people may think, oh, like Odessa or Skrillex and, you know, every single genre and subgenre has its own pop music which has been polished through, you know, maybe a capitalist or an industry type of lens. And my response to that is always to push to the fringes where people are still using what they have and not aiming for perfection, but aiming for that raw uh, homemade quality. And as far as analog goes, you know, uh, you know, the albums we'll be discussing today, a hundred years from now, will be seen as primitive uh, electronic music uh, compositions and they are analog. DJ Shadow's album that we're going to discuss is only uh, recorded and mixed using vinyl turntables and uh, you know Daft Punk's album and Aphex Twin uh, they were created as teenagers using equipment that they had picked up which is still still buttons as compared to just a laptop, which you might hear today. And so from my perspective, that is analog and homemade. And that's what I like about it, um, is that they were limited. And I think that that is the answer. Not, not that we should be uh, in this sort of cliche, but elitist way, seeking out uh, what appears to be uh, underground or, or indie, but just searching for the people that already know what they're about, are making music because they love it, not because they uh, either want to hit the top of the chart or conversely, sound good on a Spotify playlist. I'm glad you mentioned the name Skrillex because I had a question regarding mm -hmm. the topics we're covering today because I know, and I, I spent a lot of my week focusing on Daft Punk's homework. I know that's different than Skrillex because I would consider him to be a dubstep artist and I, I don't remember you going through a dubstep phase maybe you hid it from me but I couldn't define the difference between a Skrillex and a Daft Punk to me it is roughly the same thing and I know that's probably an incorrect opinion so can you explain to me where I went wrong in this hypothesis um you you didn't go any in any wrong direction as much as how electronic music has been um consumed in the United States what you think of as dubstep when you listen to Skrillex, dubstep fanboys would call Skrillex, I mean, would call brostep, brostep. Um, or even today, if you go to an, an EDM concert that is focused around dubstep, they call it rhythm. Um, but dubstep itself started in the UK. Those huge bass drops and wubs that you think of turned way down and it focuses more on the beat which is a two-step variation and that beat arrangement comes from uh the the sons and daughters of jamaican immigrants that came to the uk from jamaica and brought their their beats with them but also adding a grimy english british uh element to it which is taking those dubs, which is the, the, the B-side of a, of a reggae record, turning up the beat and turning up the bass, so you get a, like a two-steppy boom, boom, 
with the bass turned up and that just gets amped up and amped up through the 2010s until it lands in America and they just turn it all the way up as Skrillex did. And if you go back and listen to Skrillex, it is tonal and there's almost a cathartic feeling of dubstep that you get from a metal song or a punk song, which you hear the power from it. Um, but where Skrillex differenti differentiates from Daft Punk is Daft Punk started as an homage to what they were hearing in the United States and is more, more four to the floor, uh, simple. And, and Skrillex is taking something that is uh, initially, you know, Jamaican born and British bred, but also making it something totally new, which fits kind of his punk personality. And you know, you know how Skrillex sound, it, it speaks for itself. And I, I will say that they are totally different but even Skrillex himself is a talented musician who is classically trained, who knows exactly what he's doing. Um, and, and still, I think he, he pays respects to those who came before him. Talk to me about Aphex Twin. I asked you to come on this show and I asked you to send me a few albums that you would like to talk about. And mm -hmm. that was one of the, the names that you had listed. I feel like I see... Uh, Aphex Twin listed everywhere, either as an influence, as a credit of some sort, as a very influential artist. I don't necessarily understand it. Can you help get me in the right mindset if I'm going to sit down and listen to Aphex Twin? Yeah. Um, Aphex Twin, at this point, has almost become like a meme and cliche. Um, which which means that it's hit like kind of a classic status, I think. Um, Aphex Twin, uh, Richard D. James, uh, it, which is what his name is, um, is is a project by what started as, same with Daft Punk, a 19, 20 year old kid grabbing equipment that he could use to make sound make make these sounds out of out of ideas that were coming out of his brain and. Where Aphex Twin comes along is this, this genre of IDM, um, which is taking aspects of electronic music and techno, but adding really weird and creative elements to it. And so every Aphex Twin album is different. And what I like about the one I listed today, Selected Ambient Works 85 through 92, is that if you look at it within the context of his career, it is... Uh, a young weird guy uh, taking all this this technology around him, mastering it, even though it itself is kind of primitive drum machines and synthesizers, but creating these almost mathematical uh, Beethoven, Mozart-esque compositions from start to finish where you're actually hearing so many different things uh, intentionally put in, overlapping each other, in a musicality that at first listen you would think is noise, but is so intentional and beautiful that the tones come out, but you also get that, that rawness of the equipment he was using. And if, and if you look at it in the context of 1992 and how electronic music was kind of flowering then, it's kind of this awesome time capsule of uh, these, these sci-fi-esque soundtracks with the, the creativity and, and the, the artfulness of it would be impossible with just the tools he was given. Um, and so it's just, it's, it's a cool listen. Between Aphex Twin and DJ Shadows introducing what you sent me and then Daft Punk homework, there is uh, perhaps an incidental reoccurring theme where these are these critically respected and acclaimed works all produced by people in their early 20s, I think younger than 25 for, for everything that was produced there. Does that have any sort of cachet with you? Do you ever think about that just in terms of your own timeline of, oh, I'm almost the same age as Daft Punk was when they put out their first album. Where's my classic? What am I doing with my life? Yeah, um, and, and, and you know this. Some people may, may know this. I... Um, took 2020 to uh, take up Ableton Live and, and explore around with a digital audio workspace and making electronic music. And 
um, at the beginning of the year, my, my very first track I thought was, was great. A few months later, I thought it was awful. And then I, I kept making stuff throughout the year that I, I thought sounded good and was fun for me to make. Um, so I, even though I have dabbled in, in uh, the medium and I, I've enjoyed it and I think I've gotten stuff out of it, even though I don't compare myself to uh, at the time these other you know young dudes making creative stuff, I think it really speaks to to be able to now a few decades out see where it came from there. It's not just coincidence, um, and I think it's really cool to appreciate these albums not for every single note, uh, comparing it to some of our favorite, most well composed albums, but looking at it in the context of a timeline, not only for each individual artist's arc, but the genre itself and what those genres, those albums did to pave those genres is really cool, especially coming from young people. So this gets to the crux of my issue. And like I said, I spent my week listening to Homework by Daft Punk. I became very familiar with that album. Mm. And I know that for me, if I'm going to sit down and listen to a punk album, I know what I'm looking for. I know the styles that I like. I can break it down by the subgenre of a subgenre of a subgenre where I can say, well, I really like youth crew revival straight edge bands from the Northeast. No one's going to know what that means. They're going to think I'm talking about Green Day or something when they're the antithesis of that. Mm. When you're sitting down and listening to electronic music, and again, something like this where you know there's really no lyrics to speak of on an album like Homework, not that you're writing a detailed review or you're looking to find a place for it on a top 10 end of the year list. But when you sit down and listen to an album like this, what are you looking to get out of it? Right. So usually um, I'm a very ADD person. So this may be different from other people. There are a few albums where I can sit down and truly listen track for track and not be doing anything else. Um, for me, a lot of electronic music has served as kind of um, a background to a lot of the things that I do um, because just that pacing of it and whether it's a house song or, or a techno track where you just have that, that repetitive beat, other people might test the repetition of it. Um, for me, it kind of helps keep me going a little bit. And so whether I'm driving or doing chores or doing homework, the fact that I don't have to cling to the lyrics as much, I may just be able to melt into the song a little bit. Um, that's always been very relaxing for me. And then as, I, as I'm doing what I'm doing, I may stop and pause and say, oh, what was that little attribute that I heard? Um, wh what is going on in this album, this track that gives me pause? Um, and so even though I do think it can be listening music, I also would recommend people, you know, pick an activity and see how fun it can be to like go for a walk to this very tonal ambient album or just allow it to be the soundtrack to a task because I think that that's, that can also be fun. To draw the comparison back to punk music, just because that's sort of my home base, like I, I would say if somebody was looking to listen to hardcore music and for whatever reason they want to get into that, I think Minor Threats Out of Step is the best starting place because it's kind of the foundation that the next 30 years of punk music was laid on. And I think the album holds up tremendously well when it comes to electronic music, at least in terms of your taste and what you like, where's the entry point here? Is it homework? Is it another album? If somebody is drawn to this, maybe the aesthetic or the culture of it, they want to get into the music. Where is their jumping on point? So I would say that I don't think that um, homework, uh, which I have here on vinyl, um, or even selected ambient works, uh, 85 through 92, I don't think they would be great introductory albums, um, just because they are a little bit simple and um, a bit slow, but I do think they can be appreciated. I think DJ Shadows introducing would be a little bit more palatable. Um, and, and, and we can talk about that a little bit more. It's very sample heavy. As I mentioned, it, it's, it's crafted with turntablism and, and super intentional. As far as electronic music, um, it's, there are so many genres and subgenres 
that probably wouldn't even identify with each other. But um, I would say that um, the 2000s do a really cool, uh, just it's, it's a cool expression of taking electronic music out of that, that binary almost and, and allowing it to kind of breathe into other areas. And so the gorillas, you know, you might not consider them to be electronic music, but it's completely electronic. Um, and and I, I like, even though I, I sometimes I'm a house and techno purist, I like when they bring in other genres and, and pop music. I think Daft Punk's Discovery is probably one of the most enjoyable and palatable electronic music albums for anyone. Um, and, but I think it also delivers just the house elements that you could branch off into if that's what you like. Um, and, and Aphex Twin, I think, speaks more to the hardcore fan um, because it is cathartic. You know, you'll have moments where it can be completely placid and even sometimes he gets on the piano and, and has a composition in a few of his albums. And other times it will cut into this drum break that just beats you over the head and makes you, you know, feel like you want to write a 10 hour essay or go for a run. Um, but the intricacy is enough to make you just like want to replay it. As far as an entry point, um, I think if you were to Google, you know, best electronic music albums of, of all time, the way that those, those have stacked up, but also cut across subgenres. Uh, I think would be a fun experiment for anyone who wants to challenge their idea of what electronic music is to realize that there's so many different ways you can take it in which you don't even feel like you're listening to electronic music. It's just creative, creative music in itself. Well, let's shift our gears. Let's focus on homework, which is the, the sort of core of this episode. I want to talk about this album. It was released on January 17th, 1997. It's 16 songs that clocks in at about an hour and 14 minutes. It was the first full-length release from the duo we now know as Daft Punk. There's four singles on this album with Da Funk, Around the World, Burnin', in Revolution 909. From the singles on this album, those four, is there anyone that jumps out at you particularly as a really strong song? Yeah, um, I, I think the classic choice, even though the four that you just mentioned um, were kind of the hallmark singles that Daft Punk uh, released before this album. And so they have definitely always gotten more notoriety and one of those being Around the World, which is, it's kind of a long song and, and listeners may find it to be a bit repetitive, but undeniably com completely groovy. And I think this album really hits to what uh, some people have described as house music being disco's revenge. Because you have this song, it's four to the floor, it's got just kick notes on every, on every beat there, but you have this bass line that is, is reminiscent of Nile Rodgers and Chic, uh, which Daft Punk collaborated with him later. Um, he started as, as an adolescent influence for them, and they took, they took the spirit of a disco record and, and put it in a, in a house track. And later you have this, this evolution of, you know, the, the fathers of funk in that genre, appreciating Daft Punk's, uh, uh, you know, integration of that into their music and it just kind of comes full circle but around the world is that french house song you have the bass the bass line which is just in the music video people there's a bunch of different things going on and it just personifies um the album itself and i think that's a lot of what this album does and a lot of what electronic music does is it personifies something that you can't put a finger on and many of these, these, these tracks, you imagine music videos too. One of them, Defunk, was directed by Spike Jones. And if you go back and watch the video, you immediately get that from it. You get this, you know, the, the video features uh, a mannequin-like humanoid with a dog's head with a, with a stereo boombox that is blasting Defunk so loud that it's messing up his entire day. But the, the idea of shutting it off isn't even isn't even written into it. He just has to deal with the consequences of his loud, his loud music 
And although the, the, the video is camp and it's cute and it's awesome, they were going for that gritty, you know, city-like underground feel, which is for what they were doing at the time, completely on point. I watched the music video for Defunk earlier today, not knowing it was a Spike Jones music video. Watched it, said, that seems like Spike Jones probably made it. And then I Googled it. It was so delighted to find out that I was correct. He has had just, oh, what a fascinating individual. I would recommend his uh, one-hour documentary on the epically latered series on Viceland, if you can find it. Uh, Spike Jones, very, very interesting person. One of the singles on this album, stood out to me because I was reading about Revolution 909 that although it seems like almost one of the prettier songs on the album, if there was such a thing, yeah. it is a song rooted in protest. It is commentary on the brutality of French police towards the rave scene. Uh, the Daft Punk duo says they pretend it's drugs, meaning the police, but I don't think it's the only thing. There's drugs everywhere, but they probably wouldn't have a problem if the same thing was going on at a rock concert because that's what they understand. Is yeah. there an underbelly of politicism in electronic music that I'm just not privy to because I'm not involved in the scene? Or is that a pretty rare instance of a song having some sort of political message? Right. Um, I think one thing that always gets lost is that electronic music has always been political. Um, and I think that um, Revolution Down to Nine is definitely an embodiment of that. Uh, as you get into the track, the first 10 seconds are, you know, although they may be what we would describe as corny, you know, sound effects, you have the sound of the police uh, breaking up a club and, and as the song goes on, the music just keeps rolling. But electronic music has always been protest music. It's always been about, um, you know, resisting to the status quo and, and uh, what society might see as dangerous in culture. And, and it really goes back to, uh, you know, Daft Punk's inspirations on this album, which are the, the DJs out of Chicago that were doing house music. And it wasn't just DJs celebrating house music in the late 80s and early 90s, but it was the queer community. It was the black community. It was the Latino community that, you know, may, maybe didn't see as, as much going on, but were able to, to have the space where they could celebrate themselves and dance and express themselves. And sometimes those were illegal warehouse raves. Um, but the spirit of that also popped up in Europe and the same reaction by the powers that be and the police were, was fear because you're, you're creating spaces where there are less, less rules and less boundaries. And on occasion that leads to some, maybe some drug use, but that is obviously not even the point. But these, these spaces, whether it's in France or in Detroit, where, you know, you have, you have kids who have nothing grabbing together drum, machine, drum machines and synthesizers and creating beautiful techno music that would inspire all of Europe. Uh, Daft Punk saw that and they saw that happening in Paris as well. And so they felt connected to electronic music as protest music. I mentioned the singles on the album. There's 16 songs to decipher here. Uh, we're, we'll, we'll go big picture on this because I think it's easier to talk about this album as one collected work rather than going track by track. I know with my own listening experience, I was reading, and I believe it was an article from Consequences of Sound that was talking about this album, where they said the best way to consume it is to break it up into fourths. And so the first time I listened, I listened to the first fourth of the album, took a break, listened to the second half, third quarter, and then, you know, finished out the album. And it felt a little bit disjointed earlier today kind of the advice you were giving earlier where you were saying find an activity to do while listening to this music. I was sitting down, I was reading, and I had this album on in the background. And it, it became a little bit more enjoyable that time around, kind of having it all wash over me at once. Now, again, there's still a disconnect with me where I just don't think this style of music is is what I am interested in, which is not a knock on the music. It's more a knock on myself of not being able to get into that, that mental space to enjoy something like this. But I really like Defunk. I really like Phoenix. I thought rolling and scratching, which is seven and a half minutes of, I, I think it would be kind to call it noise. Yeah. But by the end of the seven and a half minutes, I was like, you know what? I kind of got what they were going for. I think like that one. Yeah. yeah. I was like, okay, that 
I had a, I had an experience where I said, okay, like I, you know, am I going to put it on a playlist anytime soon? Probably not. But I got to that point where I could appreciate what they were doing. So outside of the singles on the album, Joe, is there anything that really jumps out to you as saying, Hey, this is either something that I really like, or this is essential listening and, and my listeners should check it out. Yeah. Um, in terms of the singles, you know, I'll just note that, uh, homework is a, is a collection of singles. And although Daft Punk knew what they were doing with, with releasing their first studio album. And you can see that in the, in the intricacy of all the details and thought that's put out, put into the release of this. Um, but I think a lot of these songs such as Rollin' and Scratchin' or Rock and Roll, uh, those are more of the noisier tracks. And it kind of gives me, even though I personally don't enjoy listening to them all the time, except for maybe when I'm in a really cathartic mood, um, this is, you know, two young electronic music producers who each had their own solo projects at the time. Uh, Tomah Bengalter doing, uh, he had his uh, label called Roulet and was, was making kind of glossy French house tracks to the side. And then uh, Guy Manuel de Hohen Christo uh, producing French house in a really kind of groovy, but also uh, fresh type of sound. And you, you can kind of see how they come together on here. But also I like the song Teachers on here because that song is a groovy beat where they just go down the line and pay respect to people that they have felt inspired by throughout their career. And for two young French guys to be seeing the value of all these inspirations before the American public really even did themselves um, is amazing. And you have written on the album here as attributes, names such as, you know, uh, you have Brian Wilson, as well as um, Michael Jackson, Kenny Dope Gonzalez, King Tubby, uh, Boo Williams, Louis Bell, Luke Slater, um, you know, Hot Chocolate, David Bowie, from every single you know, genre you could think of that either went into inspiration of this album or they sampled those songs themselves and so you'll go back and listen to um a song like uh phoenix or or high fidelity and you'll catch a little snippet of bob dylan and you remember that uh a sample whether it uses a the voice or a snippet of a disco track uh the voice can be an instrument any piece of audio can be an instrument in itself if it has that tonal quality and I think although this album feels so raw and so amateur, they got that early on. Taking something simple, like a piece of, like a, a four second snippet of another production and taking the soul and, and the emotion out of that little snippet and winding into something totally unique. I think that drives appreciation for each, each and every one of these singles because none of it is by accident. I have nothing to base it on. Like I've said, this entire episode is not really a genre that I'm all too familiar with, but by the end of listening to homework time after time after time, I at least saw the merit in it. I saw why some people are drawn to it. The critics have spoken. It received a seven out of 10 from the NME, a B plus from Entertainment Weekly, and they covered a 9.2 from Pitchfork when they reviewed it for their Sunday review series a few years ago. Uh, Joe, we, we kind of briefly touched on three albums here. I'm curious specifically for your rating with Homework. If you had to give that one an objective rating out of 10, where do we land with something like this? Um, all things considered, I would give it a seven. And it's not a critical seven, but it, uh, that keeps in mind all of Daft Punk's discography. And, and the, the fact that they, they took that and went from there in a lot of really awesome ways and improved upon it um, while still allowing their first studio album to have that underground quality. Um, I think seven is just right where it fits. Joe, I appreciate you coming on. We've covered a lot. I, I'm going to title this episode Learning to Love Electronic Music with Joe Bergen because I think although we primarily focused on one album, I think you opened up my eyes to a world of possibilities within the genre. Is there anything we haven't talked about 
that you would like to talk about? And if not, by all means, plug whatever you'd like to plug. Yeah. Um, the, the only thing I'd like to say is that if, if anyone listening to this podcast um, actually wants to go back and listen to any of these albums, one album that we touched upon, DJ Shadows Introducing uh, from 1996, I think is the most artistic of the three, just because DJ Shadow is able to create this, um, this, this, this artful piece, which is all from samples. And and you forget that that's what you're listening to. It's really a soundscape uh, to a, a movie that doesn't exist. The way that DJ Shadow is able to pull guitar riffs and background vocals and different snippets into this album that really creates, you, you fall into this world, this gritty reality that DJ Shadow has constructed through this album. And it takes you to a place where you feel a little curious and a little bit on edge and that is the album that you could listen to front to front to, to end and and be intrigued by no matter what and so i would leave your audience with that recommendation in gold i think we've talked a lot of daft punk we've talked a little apex twin we've talked a little dj shadow joe i appreciate you coming on where can the people find you is there anything you'd like to plug uh there's nothing i need to plug but um I, I, it's been a pleasure to be on this this podcast and you have my full support and it was incredible catching up with you and I hope that you and all your listeners have a great 2021. Joe, I'm glad you're in my life through 2021. It has been a pleasure to, uh, I, I will say, grow with you. I'm, I feel comfortable saying that. I think we've grown as people uh, as we've gotten to know each other. As always, I'm on both Twitter and Instagram at underscore case low, C-A-S-E-L-O-W-E. The podcast itself can be found on Instagram at Art School Albums. My guest today was Joe Bergen. Joe, thank you for being on, and thank you for teaching me to love electronic music.